real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, we're back with you again. And it's Nathan Romus with you here. And today we're going to be talking to uh, one of our brothers from, I guess, across the street from where I work in hall number one. Uh, it's Steve Ferry, firefighter with the Edmonton Fire Rescue Services. So welcome, Steve. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm going to give a little bio and then we're going to get into it because uh, I think we got a lot of good things to talk about today. So Steve's originally from the Lacombe Panoka area of Alberta. In 2001, Steve joined the military right out of high school. He worked with the PPCLI, uh, it's the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry for a couple of years. I always thought that was the longest name. I, maybe they can figure out a way to shorten it at some point. But um, then he, uh, he moved to the reserves as a medic and kind of worked on your education component. Um, you became a primary care paramedic. And then as the Afghanistan war was picking up, uh, you had gone back to full service in the regular force where you deployed to Afghanistan in both 2008 and 2009. And then from there, you moved in some, into some different operations with the forces. So you moved over to CANSOF, which is a, a term we'll use throughout our conversation. That's the Canadian Special Operations Forces. Uh, with them, you deployed twice to Iraq. You completed several small team missions as well. And in 2018, you switched from military service to Edmonton Fire. And that's where you're at today. Uh, Steve also commits a bunch of time to family. You do a bunch of training on the side. You train police officers in uh, a lot of the medical uh, rescue stuff. Um, and you still work with some of the military folk. So uh, we'll kind of get into this. And man, you're a busy guy. Yeah, I, I try to stay busy. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of if you want to take us back to the beginning. Yeah, for sure. What growing up was like. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. If I could, though, um, I learned in high school social class, it never hurts to start a conversation with a quote. But today I thought it would be good to start with a, a small joke. All right, give her. That's all good. Uh, I ran this by a couple people. They were all firefighters, so it's a bit biased. But uh, what do <laughs> police officers and firefighters have in common? Oh, you got to remember this is going to be uh, listened to by a lot of coughs. So yeah, that's make okay. Angry. That's okay. <laughs> they can uh, figure it out on the okay. on the ice rink or somewhere. Might be. <laughs> What's what is it? They both want to be firefighters. Oh, geez. Well, you know what? You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong in a bunch of aspects. <laughs> well, anyways, we, that's uh, that's the icebreaker for the for the conversation. <laughs> Well, we're sitting across the street and we see you guys playing hockey and what else do you play in there? What was the one they were saying the other day? Pickleball? Yeah. Can you play that in there? Maybe. We don't, we don't like to divulge our secrets, but. Uh, yeah. You guys do have all the, all the windows taped up. You can't see in there. It's all boarded up. <laughs> secrets. <laughs> Station one is busy. We, we don't have much time for that kind of stuff. But. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, start us at the beginning. Uh, let's talk about how, how Steve got into military and fire service. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I appreciate you having me here. I appreciate you having like a, a platform for these open conversations. Your your last guests have been super interesting too. I, I hope I can be the same while being candid and you know, of course not making people mad after after my joke there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Lacoma and Pinoca. I'm, I'm a lucky guy. My dad worked very, very hard. 
He worked long hours to make sure I could play sports and do all the things I wanted to do. Uh, my mom stayed home and made sure we always had healthy food and, and enough of it and helped us get to the rink on time or to the ball diamond on time. And you know, when I was a little kid, I just always wanted to be a soldier. I used to draw little soldiers. I had little toy soldiers to play with. I loved G.I. Joe. And mm-hmm. uh, I just thought that was always the career for me. And uh, when I was still in high school, I applied for the military. And then shortly after graduating, I headed off to Quebec for my basic training. And then, and then it was kind of kicked off from there. How, uh, so you go to Quebec for basic? Yeah, some is. people do. There's a, a huge complex out there. I think it's still called the Mega, but it's in St. Jean's, Sur Richelieu, just outside of Montreal. And it's just a massive complex where a lot of leadership and recruit training occurs. It's the puppy mill for the military. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've got Wainwright just east of town here where a lot of folks have done basic. But uh, that, that's kind of the main place for, for basic training. They have all the facilities. They have all the staff. And, you know, that's kind of the hub for everybody when they start in the military. So do you get a choice? Like, could you choose to go to Wainwright? No, no. They, they tell you okay. where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> so they started early. We're going to tell you where you're going. Absolutely. Yeah. You know that's what's coming for the next few years. Yeah, interestingly enough, that was my first time ever getting on an airplane. At 18 years old was to join the Army. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So uh, I'm kind of curious when you, you're talking about... Um, the training that you might go through for uh, some of the conversations we've had, some of the training you go through for the army and just kind of comparing that to police training. I would say it's probably going to be more equivalent to what I experienced going through depot with the RCMP It is very paramilitary, um, very regimented, very structured. Uh, Everything was uh, on time and it was a lot of rank and file uh, Edmonton police training, not so much. Um, and I've talked about this on prior podcasts where it's considered more adult learning. And when I came through here, it was uh, a little more like that. There was still some kind of drill, uh, some of those programs that kind of go back to the military style. But what was basic training like for you? Well, I, I enjoyed it. It was very, very hard. Like I said, it was my first time away from home. I was very, very young. But uh, as soon as you walk through that door, you, you meet people who are in the exact same situation. And it's in your best interest to get along. It's in your best interest to be good teammates. But uh, it was certainly intimidating because that's also the first time I really got yelled at or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you don't have a choice. I remember putting my hands on on the sergeant's desk when we got to the uh, to the base late at night and first thing he said was get your hands off my desk <laughs> you don't even know where to go from there but uh, it, i thought it was a great experience uh, i made a lot of lifetime friends and i learned a lot of really important lessons in life and you know training soldiers is is not just about yelling and you know making people do things that they don't want to do you're you're setting people up to to fight and you know something small like taking care of a locker if you can't iron the clothes keep it organized follow a system with a locker how do we trust you with a machine gun? Mm-hmm. If you can't make your bed properly, how can we trust you to do anything properly? It doesn't get easier from basic training. It simply gets harder. Yeah. So if you can't do the little things right, you're not going to do the big things right. And you're certainly not going to do them under duress. There's kind of a, a quote out there that one of my uh, mentors taught me. And it's like, how you do something is how you do everything. Mm-hmm. So if you make a crappy bed, you'll do other things crappy too. I think people maybe... They think it's all about shooting the guns and stuff, but yeah, you're not doing making your bed. You can't pay attention to the little details because they 
they give you, you know, fold it this, this much, the sheets mm. and iron out the pillow. And there's a whole bunch of steps to it and procedure. You can't do your paperwork properly. And you can't, uh, for police, you can't do court testimony properly. So it translates into a whole uh, gambit of skills that you, you require for the job. So yeah, I definitely can appreciate that, what you're saying. And I remember uh, uh, being at depot, there was, uh, you know, we were up at 4 a.m. to get to Parade Square for 6. So we would be up ironing, uh, making the beds, ironing the beds too. Uh, you're making sure your, your bunk mate, like so the person across the hall from you, you were just as responsible for that person as you were for your own stuff. So it was a lot more teamwork. And it really helped you build a lot of camaraderie that way too, which I think is a lot of stuff that's missing in today's job. Um, whether it's police or I don't know about uh, fire, but I'd imagine that's a, a huge component of a lot of the stuff you you teach and and do right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting you brought up the four a.m. timings as well. That that kind of goes with the locker and the bed. Uh, if if you don't meet timings in the military, there's serious consequences. You know, if you're expected to be in position at this time, you need to be in position at that time, no matter how you get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, it's important to to do these things um and and yeah i, I think hardship it creates a, um a stronger team you know there's the uh you got your brotherhood sisterhood uh through hardship that's a that's a real thing when you're uh put through the ringer together you're a better stronger team yeah well so where do you go from basic training so what's kind of your career path yeah well, we we left uh quebec and uh, we got on a bus and we we headed to the airport and we flew Back to Edmonton, uh, I'm lucky enough to be from Alberta. I love Alberta, and and having Edmonton Garrison, which is probably you know one of the best facilities in the country, just north of home was was amazing. So yeah, we we got on a plane, we flew to Edmonton, but we went straight to Wainwright to start our infantry training. Did you go home at all in between, or is it like actually straight off the plane? You're straight to the base. Yeah, we we went straight to Wainwright, but then immediately we were able to take some holidays and. Uh, you know, at that point we were living in Pinoka and, uh, you know, my folks, I actually, I think I jumped on a bus from Wainwright to Edmonton and, and met my parents on Edmonton South Common. I, mm. I remember that too, cause I was sure happy to see them. Yeah. yeah. And what, uh, can you, can you talk about like some of the training you go through as, uh, being in basic, like what are some of the drills or things that you get taught out there? Yeah. That the infantry training was certainly to the next level in basic. You have everybody. And, and again, I'm speaking for 20 years ago too. I, I, Hope I'm not that out of touch, but uh, I, th- I think I'm pretty close. We had all trades in basic. So you've got, you know, your infantry guys, your your clerks, your Air Force mechanics. Everybody's in the same pool for basic. And then you move off to your different locations for specific training. Uh, the infantry training was certainly, like, difficult. You know, as a 19-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, um, it was hard. Like, you, if you've never been cold and hungry before, being cold and hungry gets really, really hard, mm-hmm. um, you know. Living in the bush in January is not something you just go do. You have to be taught. And we, we had excellent NCOs and they, they took care of us and they made sure we knew what we were doing. They certainly didn't make it easy. They made us accountable. But uh, yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of days on the range, a lot of you know, pepper potting through the fields of, of Wainwright, uh, a lot of pulling um, toboggans full of stuff, a lot of setting up tents. But you know, all in all, a really positive experience. And I, I think you know, one thing about the military is it makes you... I don't know if it makes you a better person, but it makes you more appreciative of the things you have. Like I said, if you if you've never been cold, uh, you 
you don't appreciate how warm you are. If you've never been hungry, you don't appreciate walking to the grocery store and, and having just food available. Mm-hmm. And if you've never been really, really tired, you, you don't really appreciate your bed the same way. I, I appreciate everything way more these days uh, just based on that one experience. I honestly think it makes people a much better person to go through experiences like that. There might even be something to be said to have people do some sort of service, whether military or whatever it might be, but um, have have them do some service right after high school to actually appreciate the things they have and be thankful for the people who came before them and uh, made all these sacrifices. Because nowadays it's it's more about your you know, people are screaming about their rights rather than their obligations or responsibilities. So it's kind of a, you want to say the world's almost like flipped around and people are looking at things from uh, not such a great perspective, maybe even a more dangerous perspective. I don't know. I don't know if we're at a good place like in the world when people aren't really, t- uh, they're just not thankful, right? Or they say they are, but they don't truly get it. And again, yeah, it's, you're talking about living in the bush and being cold and uh, you know uh, both of us deal with homeless people almost on a daily basis and you see what they go through and it's like uh, as police or fire we could probably relate to them even more having gone through a lot of the different training or other things uh, we've experienced more so than a lot of the social justice people that are out there t- uh, saying they're on their side but it's like You've never experienced anything like that. Some of them, granted, might have uh, been homeless or had addiction issues previously, and then they work with these people after, uh, after they've uh, been able to overcome some of their stuff. But I think the people who are uh, most able to relate, probably going to be a lot of military guys who jump to the police or to the fire and work with people in their own community. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. I I can't, uh, like I said, I had a a good life that went, you know, I, I, I have a good life. I have a very good life. And it started being a kid where, you know, my parents took care of me and made sure I had everything I need. Um, it's, it's difficult to try to relate what that community is going through. And some days you just can't believe what you're seeing. But um, I, I do find it interesting that there's a lot of folks out there who pay a lot of money to go through programs that are run by retired military guys that, uh, you know, they put them through a little bit of hardship. And, you know, there used to be the, uh, the basic training fitness courses, and you'd see them pushing a a truck up a hill mm-hmm. or something you know they just take these these team building exercises from the military and incorporate them in a in a civilian context and, and run really successful businesses and i i think it's awesome that people are willing to put themselves out there and, and do that you know maybe maybe more of us need to try to push a few trucks up uh gerson hill or something <laughs> or you become like bear grills and you make millions of dollars on tv yeah. just ma- making people go through crazy drills or eating bugs yeah if you're eating <laughs> bugs you've you failed the plan. You're yeah. really in trouble at that point if you're eating bugs and uh, drinking some of the things he drinks. Yeah. yeah try to plan better. <laughs> Don't run out of water so fast. Yeah. Um, so kind of back on the basic training, can you tell us how would that, uh, how does the basic training here compare to maybe some of the other militaries in the world? Oh, geez. I, 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 I would think training? it's, yeah, I would think it's similar. I mean, there's pretty much a NATO standard or, or kind of like Western military standard on how most training occurs i mean it's it's not a it's not an art it's a it's a science you don't just like guess at how to create soldiers that's a proven process that you need to follow mm-hmm. uh, 
but it, it would have to be similar. You know, I really didn't see much of other militaries until, you know, that first trip overseas. Uh, you know, I'm old enough for the Bosnia days where we, we had Dutch soldiers that stayed with us. We, we worked with American soldiers. And that was really my f- first exposure to, to other countries. But I would guess it's very similar. I know once I got to Kansas and we started, we, we spent more time with our, our allies. Everything's pretty close to the same. However, you've got like, you, you can't compare the Canadian military to the, the American military. We have challenges that just don't even exist for them. Like mm-hmm. when you talk about lift capabilities, uh, helicopters, uh, like, you know, the, the, yeah, it's just, it's a totally different mission when you're a Canadian versus an American. And, and you know, to the, to our allies' credit, they, they help us out and we help them out where we can too. It, it really mm-hmm. is a team. But every mission is different for every nation. It, it just, yeah, it depends on, on the assets you have. But once you get to the, you know, to the individual soldier, it's, it's pretty similar, whether it's a Swedish guy or a Swedish girl or, a, you know, um, from Britain or, or mm-hmm. Holland. It's, it's pretty standard. Yeah. I, it's just, I'd say it's the same for police. You got same, similar or the same training. Um, we're not at necessarily nationalized standards, but uh, everybody kind of follows very similar rules and playbook. Um, but then it comes down to funding as for what you do after you're out of the basic training, uh, what units are available to you. So, you know, yeah, the Americans will spend a lot more in their military. So there might be more things to do and more equipment. Um, but yeah, it's not to say anybody's less valuable than the other it's just you make do with what you got and uh and help out where you can kind of thing yeah absolutely um kind of i guess too i I mentioned a lot of our our allied countries they're like nato countries but um, you know training and working with afghani soldiers or iraqi soldiers they're they're the same too it was funny you could uh you could just sit down not being able to speak the language with an iraqi soldier sit there and enjoy a coffee or a tea. You don't need to say a word. You're just two people going through the same situation and uh, you're glad for each other's company. Yeah. You don't, you don't necessarily need to communicate. I always found that to be very interesting. You could just sit in a circle with these, these gentlemen and, you know, I, I, I will get to it, but, you know, becoming a medic, I was always very thankful just to go see our allies and just offer them like, hey, who's, how's everybody doing? Mm-hmm. And just hand out a few Tylenols, you know, maybe take care of a few blisters. It was always a, a nice way to give back to them for, they really you know, bore the brunt of, of a lot of our conflicts. And mm-hmm. it was nice to be able to just do those small gestures for them. So where do you go from, your, you come back here and then where's your career kind of go? What's the path? Yeah, we, uh, my course was posted to the 1st Battalion, uh, PPCLI, the garrison here. And like I said, the Edmonton garrison's fantastic. Uh, it, it was a great place to work, um, but I was very, very young. So we went to Bosnia, which, which was interesting. I, I always felt super, not bad, but I was grateful to have had a, a low intensity first deployment, whereas some dudes went, you know, early like that 2002, 2006 Afghanistan. Like that's high intensity stuff. There, that you're going right into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went to Bosnia, um, and you know, while I was in training, you you had 9/11, uh, and then while we were deployed to Bosnia, you also had the invasion of Iraq. And as my career kind of progressed, when when you're 20 years old, did you ever notice that a year goes by a lot slower than when you're 40? Yeah. <laughs> so it just kind of seemed like Canada was not necessarily going to get into these conflicts, the, you know, not the way I wanted. I don't know what the right word is, but it just seemed like Canada wasn't going to be uh, participating at a high, high level in these conflicts. Now, obviously, in hindsight, we know what happened. Like 
everything changed. We, we end up very heavily engaged in Afghanistan. But um, so I just kind of was like, well, I don't know if this is quite for me. You know, I grew up wanting to be a soldier. And then I kind of started questioning if that was a career I wanted. And we had, uh, we always had medics attached with us. And I was really interested in what they were doing. And then I also had my first introduction to what like TCCC or tactical combat casualty care when I was in the infantry. And I was like, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to be a paramedic. I'd love to go see what happens on the ambulance. And uh, the military covered my cost for school. And then I switched from the reg force to the militia. And I started working for the Big Stone Cree Nation out of uh, Wabasca up north there and Peerless Lake and Trout Lake. Mm-hmm. So that was my next step was uh, as a, a primary care paramedic uh, for Big Stone Cree Nation. Okay. So when you get into that, um, that sounds actually pretty good that they covered the cost for it. <laughs> and, you know, they want their people to grow and then if you're still in the militia, you come back and now they've got somebody who's well-equipped, well-trained. Um, sounds like a good benefit for the military. So what was it like working as a medic? Uh, well, working, the Big Stone Cree Nation took great care of us. We, we had, you know, we had a good place to stay. We had uh, good ambulances. We had all the equipment we needed. You know, there's a lot of stories from the early 2000s with like private ambulance services where those, those paramedics didn't have what they need. We never faced that, but it was very interesting we were all very young and it's a very isolated place Mm -hmm. and helps a long ways away sometimes when you're in these remote communities but uh, i learned a ton because it's you it's your partner maybe you know an rcmp officer that's 40 kilometers away and and then you're living right in the community so it it was an awesome experience i i really i learned a lot um a a tough day working you know on the Big Stone Cree Nation was sometimes harder than a, a tough day in Afghanistan and Iraq. You're a long, long ways from help. Mm-hmm. And we had a very limited scope of practice for treatment. So when you had those big calls, you know, somebody with a head injury or, or delivering babies, which is still to this day, one of the most stressful things I think you can do in pre-hospital care. You're just two 21-year-old PCPs uh, barreling down a gravel road in January trying to meet up with an airplane. And if you're lucky, maybe a cop can uh, meet you halfway and drive the ambulance. So it was just, you were on your own. Uh, you, you had to be smart. You had to uh, think quick and you, know, you had to do your job. I think that's interesting you're mentioning that. Uh, it makes me think of uh, back to being in Okotoks, doing the RCMP stuff. And that was a bigger center, not isolated by any means. But I mean, there's days where, yeah, there's only two of you working even in a big place like that, you'd be two or three of you on. And one of you's at a call at one end of your uh, geographic region. And the other one, our region was about an hour from end to end. And that was one of the smaller ones in Alberta, uh, if not the smallest. And uh, yeah, there's days where I'd be at a call by myself and I'm 24 when I got in. And it's like, here you are. And, you know, people look to you as the authority figure and you know, they're like, where do I go? What do I do? And how do I do it? And you're 24 and you're directing people who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And you're thinking, man, I, I was hoping you had more experience with this <laughs> than I did. Um, but yeah, driving ambulances and doing other things, it's kind of, just got to make things happen. So yeah. Well, we relied heavily on the, uh, the RCMP to help us out with transporting sometimes uh, where you really needed two sets of hands in the back. And, you know, if you're lucky, uh, they would get to you in about 20 if they were able to meet you halfway. Yeah. So your, uh, sorry, your first deployment was before the medic stuff? Yeah. Yeah. I went yeah. to Bosnia with the, with the first battalion. 
So can you kind of talk about um, how that was, what your experience over there was like? Yeah, but, well, you know, lots of uh, lots of folks went to Bosnia. We certainly showed up there on the tail end of the the mission as well. You know, you look at 1994 mm-hmm. trips to the former Yugoslavia, and you've got your, uh, you know, your your Sarajevo situations, your your um, you know your incidents with the running into like the Croatian and, and Serbian militaries. Uh, ours was very calm. You know, for mm-hmm. the most part, we delivered a lot of clothes and food. And we helped out with a lot of like civil military affairs. So we had an officer that was, you know, he was out there just helping, spending money in the community. So driving him around was something that we did a lot. But it, it was a lot of fun. I, it was my first time outside of Canada and you get a couple of, of leaves. You know, you get two, uh, two 96-hour passes and then a three-week pass. So I got to kind of cruise around Europe a little bit and, and check things out. So it was a lot of fun as a, as a young kid. But the tour itself, to be honest, was, you know, you rotated from patrolling to watching the gate to quick reaction force. That was your life one week at a time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, again, the, the Canadian taxpayers, they took care of us. We had a pool table. We had ping pong. Uh, we had healthy food. Uh, we were warm at night. But other than that, it was it was an uneventful. I imagine yeah. they, they try to make it as much as home-like as possible. Yeah, you get used, like in, in the military, you get really good at making home where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, home can be a, a trench, home can be a tent, home can be an old bread factory, just like in Bosnia. But uh, it's kind of the people you're with. You just hope there's enough stuff to keep you busy. Yeah. It, it, it's super interesting with that, though, because 20 years ago, we, we were playing board games. You know, we'd have Axis and Allies going set up in someone's room for, uh, you know, three nights at a time. Mm-hmm. There, there was two computers for a camp of, well, no, there might have been four, sorry, uh, to, to send emails. Mm-hmm. It was, there was just less to do. You know, now when you deploy, it's like, you know, inter- there better be internet, you know, or everybody <laughs> loses their mind. But yeah. Yeah, it was just a, a little different. So are you guys mostly on, uh, would you call like humanitarian missions? Is it more supporting and, and just helping rather than necessarily fighting people? Yeah, there was certainly no no fighting. We had like some crowds and things like that. But there, no, there was no uh, no fighting on, on those deployments. Now, obviously, you know, the guys in the early to mid-90s, totally different tours. Mm-hmm. But, but for us, it was uh, none of that. We were just trying to engage with the community as much as possible, help distribute, uh, you know, like I said, food and clothes and, and rebuild some of these communities. Okay. So you come uh, back, you do the education portion. Mm-hmm. Now you're uh, uh, a medic. We call you a medic. Uh, I don't know all the terms, so I don't want to get them all mixed no, up. But no I'll say medic for simplicity. Yeah, yeah it's pretty, it, that term works. Yeah, yeah. it works throughout. Uh, so where do you kind of go from there? Because you then go back to the reg force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once uh, once Canada kind of committed to that, uh, you know, they started moving from Kabul down into Kandahar, I think in 2005. And then the 1st Battalion was deployed in 2006. So I knew a ton of those guys. And, you know, I had been talking to them through their workup training and as they prepared. And from what they were telling me, like, you know, Canada was going to you know, take our place and, and get involved in this thing. So I immediately put my transfer back into the reg force. Okay. So you were ready to get after it. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to miss. <laughs> I didn't want to miss this. I, I wanted to be part of that. I think a lot of this um, stuff, you know, when, when you listen to other podcasts, especially ones that are uh, other military guys run, uh, most famous one, probably Jocko, but a lot of them sign up and they, you know, it's your younger guys and you're just, raring to go and you want to get into the you want to get into the shit in there right and 
you have um maybe it's all the movies you watch and cartoons and everything as you're growing up uh but you have an idea of how things or, or an image of how things kind of work same with police when we get in it's like i watched all lethal weapons and diehards and think you're diving out of buildings and running around just being crazy um but then you get in and you see it's 99% paperwork so a military 99% humanitarian stuff it's not there's there's a lot of options that come before uh, fighting, fighting with somebody, whether it's in another country or it's on the street here. There's a million ways to talk to somebody, de-escalate things. So uh, I don't think I think that part gets lost on the general public when the media puts a lot of things out about uses of force. It's like the use of force uh, uh, for the number of interactions that police have with people. And imagine it'd be the same with the military. Uh, there are millions of interactions a year and, you know, less than 1% end up in a, a use of force. And even when we say use of force, there's very minor uses of force uh, compared to, you know, getting into an actual shooting event. So, um, but yeah, when you, when you get back into it, so tell me kind of what's that like you get back into the reg force and then what? Yeah, I, so I, I had to uh, catch up on some training. Um, and then I got posted to one field ambulance here in, in Edmonton. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to pretty quickly get put on uh, the task force that left from Edmonton in 2008. And, you know, you know it's interesting. You, you, you talked about the, the misconception of you know, what uh, police officers, like they show the, the exciting stuff, but then in reality, there's a lot of the boring stuff. The military is the same way. There's a lot of just being really, really bored. Mm-hmm. But in between that is like sheer moments of terror. And <laughs> and I think when if you talk to most army guys, and I don't like to speak for other other veterans because I think there's too many people that that do that. They don't you know, there there's always like yeah, I I I'll leave it at that. I think there's too many people that speak for how veterans should or or do feel. But I can tell you right away, um, that kind of stuff is exciting till someone on your side takes damage. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden it becomes very, very real. And it's not as exciting as you want it to be. Uh, it's it's actually the opposite. But uh, I always look at it this way: I the world can be uh, like a a bad, scary place. Sometimes the city of Edmonton can be a, a bad, scary place, and and things are going to go wrong. And I just want to be part of the solution to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I'm equipped, I'm well trained uh, to to help deal with with these kind of problems. But you know that that wanting to get after it. Like I said, it goes away real fast when somebody on your side is hurt. Well, it's all fun and games till somebody's hurt. Yeah. So that was, you know, the big eye opener for I think a lot of us. And like I said, I was uh, at this point a, a little bit older, um, but that that goes away quickly. And and to your point about, you know, the when things go wrong, uh, that to me is is such an interesting concept because yeah, you can have ninety nine point nine percent of whatever those interactions may be. Uh, whether it's soldiers or police or even firefighters or paramedics, it's our job to make sure that that 0.1% doesn't happen. That's part of being accountable. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what the taxpayers are always looking for from, you know, their, their public servants is, are we always trying our best to make sure that we don't let things go wrong and just call it doing business? Mm-hmm. We, we are accountable for what we do. Um, they pay us with their, their taxes and they expect a high level of service. And uh, I'm a big believer in that. You know, if you're a police officer or a firefighter or a soldier, you know, you you do owe the public uh, your best. And I understand that sometimes it gets tough, but 
we, we do have to make sure that we are uh, accountable to them. So based on what you're saying, I'm guessing there's a few times where you've taken some, had to deal with some casualties while you're deployed. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, again, I don't want to speak for, for other people from the military, but even if you're not out in the, uh, out in the field, they used to call it like outside the wire. And it was a term I, I didn't really like because it created a, a differentiation between the, the folks that were in the field and the folks that were supporting us back at like Kandahar Airfield or within the Ford operating bases. A lot of those people had to stay up late at night and, uh, you know, send off casualties from all kinds of nations. And so I, I think everybody that deploys deals with casualties in some fashion, mm-hmm. yeah, whether you're out in the field treating them or whether you're saying goodbye to them on the, on the tarmac. There was a pretty uh, interesting podcast. I'd have to look up, try and find it again. Uh, there was one where uh, the interviewee was a guy who worked essentially in the morgue for the military. And, you know, they, m- most people have like a medic or somebody on and uh, they got this guy on who's like the last person to see the bodies before they go back overseas. And he was talking about some of that and just the things he's seen. And then a lot of the, uh, the mental state of, the, of where he is when he's in that work. And yeah, I couldn't imagine like... Some of that you're you know well, you're you're there alone or you're there with a few people, but you're not talking to the other people in front of you, and uh, just a lot of time to think, a lot of time to kind of get into your own head and dwell on things. And yeah, sometimes it could be kind of scary, um, especially like some people could have some pretty bad thoughts. But uh, it's just yeah, it gets you really thinking about all these people and who's back home waiting for them. Yeah, that and that's important. That that kind of goes back to my point about you know being in the field or 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 being at the base. Uh, you don't know what other people have been through, and you know, frankly, everybody's been through some shit. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't do anyone any good to uh, you know make judgments. So what is uh, when you deploy as a medic? What are some of those? Uh, can you talk about some of the missions or some of the things that you were on and and how those kind of play out and what it looks like? Yeah, uh, I, I guess I can kind of start with Afghanistan. My first trip to Afghanistan was was really interesting. Uh, I, I was part of what's called like a role one medical facility. So that's like your primary care. It's like going to the doctor's office here. You know, you got the big hospital uh, and then you got the doctor's office. So we mm-hmm. did with like, you know, the, the bumps and bruises, the, uh, you know, the ingrown toenails and the sore feet uh, while the big hospital handled all the incoming casualties. But, you know, I was just glad to be there. Um, you know, helping a guy get new screws for his glasses is important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I liked being the guy that helped order that. But what came with that task also was that uh, I backfilled for medics that uh, if somebody got injured or if somebody went on holidays, I would backfill their positions uh, within the battle group, which was, you know, that, that group of people that were outside the wire. So I had an opportunity to work with just tons of different, you know, infantry uh, units, uh, armored units. You know, I worked with the, the French armored unit. I think it's 12 RBC. Two guys spoke English in the, in the whole unit. And I got to spend two weeks with them. But, you know, like I said, with the, uh, you know, the Iraqis and the Afghani soldiers, I didn't need to talk to those guys. Uh, I just need to be there and, and be a good teammate. And, you know, if someone was sick, we just bring over someone to help with the conversation. We get them sorted out. But I got to work with all kinds of subunits. And then I got to see the entire area of operations in Kandahar, mm-hmm. which, which was amazing. 
And the biggest thing I learned from this deployment was how to be a good enabler. I had three weeks or, you know, these stints of three weeks with different units. And I had a few days to fit in. I hung out with them for three more weeks. And then I went to a new one where I had to start all over again where no one knew me. So mm-hmm. what I learned on that trip was how to be a good enabler, you know, how to fit in quickly with the team, how to gain trust. And, uh, you know, that, that was something that always stuck with me. Yeah. yeah. Well, and did you end up outside the... Uh like going out of the in the field and oh absolutely going out there yeah yeah absolutely um you know the that was your your Zari Panjway um years I mean there was a lot of Zari Panjway years but uh, yeah absolutely you spend time is that a specific area yeah Zari Panjway geez trying to describe it I'm gonna there's gonna be guys that are gonna be furious if I don't get this right I'll be <laughs> careful here but uh, Zari Panjway was kind of the hot spot for for the Canadian battle group uh, you know it was it was long like you know we had a whole bunch of uh, these outposts just into the district and they were just constantly, uh, it, yeah, there was just constantly things going on and, and trying to secure the road and, and move stuff and, and support the ANA in their operations. And, you know, I'll never forget some of the, the long, long walks that we had from, you know, Spurwingar, which was one of our operating bases out to, um, geez, what was it called? I think Mushan. Just these long, long walks in the middle of the night with hundreds of people strung out over, you know, hundreds of meters. And then the same thing with vehicles, you know, these, these long seven, eight, nine kilometer long vehicles, just cruising up and down the riverbed, trying to get supplies in and out and and whatnot. Is this all like the hundreds of people you're walking with? Is this all soldiers or is this like you're moving, uh, civilians? No, no. uh, There are some civilians once in a while, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Catherine O'Neill, she's a, a reporter. She was with us on one of these long, long walks. And, uh, but for the most part, it's, yeah, just soldiers, you know, moving from place to place. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's really hard, to be honest, Nathan, like, to think back that long. It's 14 years ago to, to think, like, what we were doing on, I mean, the idea was to try to gain control of, of territory and mm. you know, kind of push, people push the Taliban yeah. out and then try to rebuild. But it felt like we, we never gained a lot of ground sometimes. Yeah, we we would we would go out during the day. We'd leave at night, and they'd be right back there. Yeah, or you just essentially displacing a problem, right? It's, if they're not in the one area to the left, then they're moving over to the right, and then you go to the right, they go back to the left. It felt like that sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And but then every once in a while, they would choose to fight, and and then and then that's when you'd get into you know your your kind of your combat operations, or if you if you could plan some deliberate operations. There were deliberate operations, like we're going to start here, and we're going to and we're going to go here. Mm-hmm. And we're going to control this ground from here to here, and, and then we're going to hold it. Was there any? Uh, can you talk about any experiences you had where you might have been right in the combat, and you're either involved directly in the combat, or you're doing your casualty care? Yeah. So my first tour. Um, well, I, I guess the thing with medics too is you have to keep in mind that uh, it's not. I'm not set up to 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 necessarily fight. There's other guys who get paid to do that. Mm-hmm. My job is to make sure that, uh, you know, I stay close to the Sergeant Major or the warrant. Uh, I'm his fire team partner. And depending on how you're set up, you know, the, the last thing the medic should be doing is trying to run into the gunfight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you might start setting up like, okay, we're going to, if we have casualties, we'll put them here. But for the most part, you're just staying in the warrant's hip pocket, being close to him, and you're on call for what he needs you to do. And that's, that's medicine. Okay. That was always the big thing that uh, trying to teach and mentor young medics was like, you are a medic, be really good at medicine. So it, it was never my job to, you know, if, if you have to be engaged, like, do you fire your weapon? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
but that's not your primary job. You're not going to get in the line and, and, and start laying down heavy fire. You're going to get to the warrant. You're going to make sure you're close to him. So what's it like being in combat and trying to do medicine on people? Well, you know, like I said, I didn't have to treat any uh, combat casualties like Canadians on, on this tour. Uh, we, we treated a few people like Afghanis, host, host nation people, uh, during other incidents, but, uh, you know, that trip, I never treated a, a Canadian soldier. So okay. what, what was it, what's combat like? Uh, I mean, I think it differs for everybody. It depends on the action too. Like IEDs are certainly scarier than small arms fire. Mm -hmm. Uh, mortars are certainly scarier than small arms fire, but I guess it depends on what's happening, you mm -hmm. know, and what kind of firepower you have to, if you got heavy firepower close by it, it's usually ends pretty quick or comes to a conclusion pretty quick but it, it's such a variable it's almost impossible to describe so when um we'll move into like some of your other deployments uh maybe talk about a bit about the can soft side of things can you talk uh about even just the start of it so what does that look like when you're trying to apply and go through the training and how's that look yeah so the the, I did have one other deployment to Afghanistan between my, my time in the brigade when I moved to Kansas. Uh, but uh, yeah, once, well, I think the biggest thing is there is not a better feeling in the world than like really making a difference and helping someone. You know, I, I, I worked last night and I'll draw a quick fire story here. But uh, last mm -hmm. night, you know, we're, we're on one of the big ladder trucks making our way back to uh, station one and we get flagged down on. On 106 Ave there and somebody's like hey this this guy needs help and um we jumped out and this gentleman had overdosed and he was very sick you know he's blue in the face his uh, vitals are, are very they're bad mm -hmm. um and to be able to intervene and, and help and you know i, I think we saved that guy's life uh, it's, it's a great feeling it's the exact same thing in combat it's mm -hmm. whether it's a canadian or an afghan or an iraqi there is a a, a very good feeling when you know that you made a difference in whether this person lives or dies yeah yeah i've few and far between had those uh experiences on the police side of things there's been a couple times where you know uh, a doctor said like if you didn't do this or you weren't there at this time uh, this person be dead so yeah it's pretty cool uh pretty cool experience to have that happen and, and see um the results of your training uh, especially so um, but yeah, talk, talk to us about like what it's like, uh, going through the training for Kansoff. Yeah. Kansoff was, was just, uh, you know, it was the, the best experience of my life. Uh, hmm. you know, professionally there's, there's your home life and then yours, your professional life. And, and being a member of Kansoff was just, uh, like an absolute privilege. It's the best people in the country. It's an amazing organization. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's. It's indescribable how much of a privilege it, it was to be there. Now, that said, being an Edmonton firefighter is a, an amazing privilege as well. This city takes care of us. We have everything we need. Our trucks are good. Our gear is good. Uh, we're, we're well taken care of. But there's just this professional satisfaction that comes along with a job like that. Mm -hmm. um, so when it came to Kansas, you know, I, I had that second deployment to Afghanistan. And I came home and I had a very young family. And it's interesting because... I hear a lot of, uh, you know, police and, and firefighters sometimes say like, well, you know, I'm not getting rich being a, a police officer or a firefighter. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you where you're really not getting rich and that's being a soldier. 
Mm-hmm. And there are very few ways to, you know, there's no overtime. Like if you're at work, you're just at work. There's, you know, the only time you get a pay bump is if you get promoted. And some of those promotions come with all these new responsibilities and about 40 extra bucks a month. Hmm. However, one of the, the big ways that you can kind of bump your pay is to be in Kansas. There's allowances there. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, we could really use that. And then I had some friends that were out in Kansas and they're like, man, this is, this is the army you thought you were joining. So I put my application in, uh, it took about 11 months. I went out there, I had my, you know, I went through the selection process uh, and, and just to make sure everybody understands I was not an, an operator, I was a medic. Mm. There's, there's a huge difference in the selection process and there's a huge difference in the job description. So I just want to make sure everybody understands that. But uh, yeah, I got there and, you know, I'll never forget the day I got issued my gear. And I was like, this is like, it's like Christmas. I didn't even know what I was getting. They just gave me bags of stuff that I, it took me years to figure out I, how to use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. But uh, so that was one of the driving reasons. But, uh, you know, there was also the, you know, the avail- availability of missions. Like, Kansas is always working. And like I said, I, I knew there was things going on in the world, and I, I wanted to be a part of it. And is is there. Well, so what is the training like? Is it just, uh, just that much more intense as things like, is it timed events and oh yeah yeah and and i mean the the pathway that that people take to being a special operations med tech is varied because it's a it's a super new well it's not super new but it's a newer concept within that command where they're trying to figure out a consistent way to vet and then train your close specialists and your your medics are really they are medical specialists that's what they're there for however you have to make sure that you know guys have the the fitness the tactical acumen um, you know, the, the insertion and extraction capabilities. So the, the training kind of for me kicked off with, uh, you know, a trip out to Ottawa and I, I took my medic course out there and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of attribute stands and stuff like that. And one thing I learned really, really quick, it, you know, and I carry it with me to this day is I'd, I'd rather work with the guy who doesn't have the best skills and a great attitude than mm-hmm. the guy with the best skills and a shitty attitude. Yeah. So a lot of team building stuff, you know, early mornings, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, a lot of problems to solve, a lot of failure. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the biggest lessons I learned when I got to Kansas. You know, I never made it to the NHL mm-hmm. or to Major League Baseball, but I never considered those a failure. Yeah. However, I had never failed a task in the military. I had never failed at anything. And the first time I failed, it, it was one of the most important lessons of my life. Because I didn't just fail, I failed miserably. Yeah. And... I think learning to fail is another thing that the army helps teach you. Mm-hmm. If you've never failed, sometimes you won't put yourself out there. So learning to fail was was key. Well, you can't be afraid to fail, right? Otherwise, you never take any risks. You never learn things. A lot of good things come out of failing, especially uh, when you're doing it in a training environment. That's where that's where you want to fail, uh, I guess. <laughs> It's better there and get your practice in than uh, in the real thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I know you talked about going on a couple deployments with Cansoft and a few of the smaller missions. So, what what kind of missions um, or what do those deployments look like? Yeah, the the uh, a, a lot of training. You know, trying to help out host nation forces get themselves, you know, prepared for for what was to come. So, you know, my first trip mostly involved involved training it was, it was interesting because we try to set up medical training and and these poor guys like you know these these folks uh these kurds they were spending all night on the line and and i'll, I'll just throw some context out there too for everybody I, I mentioned earlier about being in the military 
I think it helps make you appreciate things more. Once you see what some of these other folks are going through, you just appreciate being a Canadian that much more, like how, mm-hmm. how good this country is. I know we have our, our blemishes. I know we have some problems. But at the end of the day, this is a good place to live. So just imagine you're you know, a plumber in Edmonton. 10 days a month, you're expected to head to the front lines and you're going to stare across a no man's land at ISIS. And every once in a while, they're going to shoot at you. You've got like 10 rounds in your machine gun, so you might shoot back. Uh, but 10 days a month, you're going to go do that. So you're going to be up there 24 hours a day for 10 days, 10 days of the month. Or, you know, you might volunteer to drive an ambulance. You're going to participate in the war effort somehow. Mm-hmm. We were offering training to these folks and they would be up all night and they would still come down from their positions to participate in training. Now they loved to shoot and they loved the mortars and they loved the, the long range shooting. But nobody wanted to train medical. So we had a couple medical days set up and I got a funny picture. I got my classroom all set up, uh, you know, tourniquets are out, whiteboards ready to go, linguist is there and nobody showed up. So we, we had to find a way to make medical training more fun. And then we just turned it into background activity for, for the, the shooting days, you know, half the guys on the line and, and half the guys learning to use tourniquets. So that was the best way to get that stuff. In, so they're watching stuff. the same movies over there that we were growing up. They got the same impression of the military. Yeah, lots of <laughs> lots of boring days. But yeah, these, these, these folks just still came down off the mountain every day. You know, you had nursing students and pharmaceutical students working in these clinics. We would obviously supplement those. You know, I, I made sure that I went and helped the sick grade, you know, just a couple hours in the morning, go help, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with those bumps and bruises. And then we did a lot of training. That, that was kind of my first, uh, my first trip. Now, the second trip was certainly a little bit different because we were, you know, there, there were a ton of, of, uh, of host nation casualties. And, and we were part of, you know, treating them and evacuating them back to like that, that higher level of care. And this is where, you know, I, I learned a lot of things in Kansas. I learned, you know, I learned how to lead. Mm-hmm. I learned how to follow. I learned how to train. And I also learned really, really good medicine. And it was, I, I remember the day when, you know, I kind of wrapped up my, my medic course and I was like, I can't believe I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was a huge eye-opener but uh when when you start really treating these these bad battlefield casualties not just in ones and twos but you know in dozens and hundreds uh, it yeah it was quite the experience are you were you out in like at the front line when you're treating a lot of these people or are you uh back in a base and they're coming in and yeah you're you're uh you're in a safe space mm-hmm. yeah you, you, it's really really hard to do good medicine uh that far forward yeah. So the, the host nation folks took care of uh, the very, very far forward stuff, but we were their first stop on the way back to uh, what, what would be called like tertiary care or, or that end level care. So we just made sure that you know, we had all the bleeding controlled, a good airway in place, make sure that the, the chest is intact, drugs are in place, hypothermia is taken care of. And then, and then we fired them into uh, you know, an ambulance driven by a volunteer back to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Lots of stuff going on. Absolutely. So, um, from Kansas after that, what makes you kind of think, okay, I'm done with the military side of things. Now I want to kind of transition into something else in life. So what's that journey like? Yeah, the if I could too, and, and again, this is one of those things I don't want to, uh, you know, like I said off the top, I want to be candid, but I also don't want to make people mad. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when we talk about like service, there there are different levels. And the commitment that we ask of of soldiers is kind of beyond a lot of people um you know and i, and I hate to say that uh, you know 
beyond even what a lot of like fire EMS and, and police go through. Because like I said, there's no, there's no overtime. There's no union taking care of you. You just do what you're told and you, you carry on with the mission. And, and there was a point where I had young kids and I was away from home of like, you know, 270 days a year. Mm. So there was, there was this, this point in time where my kids, do you tell them you're going to leave in the morning and wreck their sleep? Or do you just be gone in the morning and lose their trust? Mm. You know, when your kids start to recognize luggage as a negative thing, it, it's not a lot of fun. Yeah. And well, I shouldn't say that because I, I did it. Like I volunteered for it, but it just got to be a lot. And, um, you know, me and my wife are both very, very proud Albertans. We love it here. Like Edmonton is home. I've been all over the world and Edmonton's one of the best places in it. It was time for us to make our way home. The hard thing was, is I really didn't want to go from, you know, the special forces back to a brigade. And I don't mean any disrespect to the brigade. It was just a, a transition I didn't want to make. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, I'm still young enough. I want to chase that dragon of excitement. What kind of job can I do where I get the teamwork? Uh, you know, I can pay the bills mm-hmm. and I get to be excited. And fire just kind of stood out. I had tried to be a cop in like 2012 and nobody wanted me. But uh, it, it just made sense. So I started the process while I was in Ottawa. And uh, we came back here. We I worked at One Field M for a year. And then it was on to the fire department. Okay. And I'm guessing that's a pretty natural transition. I mean, you got a lot of the medic training. Um, now you're going to be learning about fighting fires. So maybe you have a portion of that job kind of covered off. Does, uh, what does the training look like for fire when you go through? Yeah, my, my training was fantastic. Uh, the guys that, that conducted it, uh, the, the adjuncts were amazing. You know, even, you know, you'd think with this crazy medical background, you, you just coast through the, the advanced first aid portion, which it, it really was, but boy, did I learn a lot. Just good, simple things about how to be a good pre-hospital guy. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned natural transition. Fighting a fire is, it's just battle procedure. You got a bunch of people with designated tasks working together to complete an objective. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're on the hose or you're on the fan or you're cutting holes in the roof, everybody has a specific mission to obtain the uh, the strategic goal, which is putting that fire out, and it, it was amazing. I couldn't believe how similar it was to to uh, to a military operation. But again, the, the fire department is a, a paramilitary structure, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was supernatural. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize too how uh, you know the military has the budget and the uh, curriculum designers, and uh, the Mounties had this certainly. Uh, as well, they they come up with a lot of the things that we use in daily life. Uh, a lot of uh, organizations, police, fire, they're all based off of the, that those structures, and you know a lot of the tools we use, a lot of the technology. That's a huge one. A lot of that stuff comes out of uh, wars of the past, like World War One and Two, created a ton of inventions, but. Um, yeah, I don't think people realize that, that a lot of the stuff comes from the military, actually. Yeah, I think the uh, even the incident command system is based off of like a military structure, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. I hope I'm not misspeaking there. But uh, yeah, ICS is based off of, you know, a military concept. Yeah. Yeah. So 
once you're in uh, fire, uh, you're going through the training. How long is training for that? Oh, geez. So it's like six months, like police? No, it's a little shorter. I, I think it's 14 weeks. And again, I'm, I'm sorry if I get that number wrong, but I, I believe it's 14 weeks. You've got your, uh, you know, you got your, your intro week. Uh, you know, the, the, there's a class in right now. They, uh, they did their kind of intro week uh, into medical training, into fire training, and then they kind of have their wrap-up grad week. But I, I think it's about 14 weeks. Okay. Yeah. How long have you been on with fire now? I'm into my fifth year. Fifth year. Yeah. And what's it been like working with fire? Oh, it's it's an awesome job. Mm-hmm. Like like I said, the the city takes great care of us. We we have good trucks. You know, our infrastructure is good. I, I mean, sometimes our biggest thing we we were. Uh, I I worked the last few days here. I worked last night, like I mentioned. But uh, our air conditioner was working, and we all kind of laughed about how, boy, we've got a good one. Uh, you know, the, the, our biggest problem is that our air conditioner is not working. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the city came and fixed it, which I really appreciate. But, uh, no, it's a great job. The, the city takes care of us. We have, uh, you know, we have good programs to keep our gear clean. Uh, the trucks are nice. Uh, I think recruitment is, is good. They're hiring, you know, the right people. But, uh, yeah, it's a great job. And, and then, you know, I go back to that, uh, that time away from home. I get to see my children way more. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing with that, and there's a lot of army guys that can relate with this, that once they leave, me and my wife had to, we're still learning how to live together. When when you do 10 straight years, 12 straight years of being away from home that much, and now you're going to be home every day, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny. We, uh, you know, Sometimes I feel like she looks at me and says, man, you got to take a trip. Yeah, Because <laughs> you're on top of each other now and you're yeah. in each other's space and it's yeah. like, uh, and we're just humans. It's, some people like their alone time and yeah it's kind of managing that yeah absolutely and and i think one of the other things too when when you're away that that often you, you know you get home so you get home on a friday night you wake up saturday and you want to take everybody to the pool mm-hmm. and uh you know you have these expectations that aren't realistic because now these kids are exhausted because they knew you were coming home and and you just want to parachute back in after being away for 90 days and, and go to the pool it just doesn't work that way and and that kind of goes back to that level of service i talked about that you know our soldiers go through and i think it's important to to stay empathetic to that and, and then i i you know i the guys that i work with they i get teased a lot because eh? i can barely make it past 7 30 in the morning without you know telling an army story you know, yeah. like, oh yeah okay steve we know you're in the <laughs> army but uh, i i just want those guys to appreciate what they have and and being an edmonton firefighter is a job that should be appreciated uh and maybe backtracking a bit when you leave the military is there any sort of course or uh program that helps you kind of re-civilianize because you know uh you, you see on again you might see it in movies but you hear about it on podcasts and there's a lot of people who have trouble transitioning back to civilian life um whether it's ptsd or they are you know they just lack that daily structure which is a lot of people like it's like i know i'm doing this this and this today at these times and that really keeps you focused and um now all of a sudden that's just gone. So is there any kind of program that moves you through back, back yeah, to it? Yeah, I mean, Veterans Affairs and the Canadian military, you know, I don't want to say that they they take good care of everybody because there's a lot of guys, uh, you know, a lot of veterans, a lot of retired soldiers who who feel like they haven't been taken care of. And I understand where they're coming from, but uh, there are absolutely programs. You know, for for me having the the time that I served, I'm a, I think it's about $60,000 worth of secondary education that I'm entitled to. With that, I mean, even just there's five grand for personal development. So I took like a World War II history course. I took a gunsmithing course. Hmm. And Veterans Affairs covers all these things. 
I didn't need to access any of those services. I was very, very lucky to to come out of my service, like, you know, very, very healthy, like, you know, physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, there are those, um, those not checks, but uh, programs in place. But do they always work out for our, our veterans? No. Uh, for some of them, though, yeah, I think it does work. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I guess using the word check kind of makes me think, like, do they... Do they check in on people, or is there some sort of? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a, again a, a tough conversation to have because uh, you know I, I had a gentleman come up to the other day. He told me his brother's really struggling, and it almost seems like the organization that's trying to help you tries to hurt you at the same time. And it doesn't make any any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, yeah, I, I think it's really a case by case. It's such a complicated, difficult topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm sitting here telling you I'm good. Wouldn't take long to find a guy where you could say no, I'm not good. And I need help. Well, actually, uh, and tomorrow, one of the recordings I'm doing is with a professor from the University of Regina, and he did a a study on PTSD with the RCMP. Um, and he talks up a little bit about, uh, and we're going to get into it tomorrow. So I don't have a whole lot of the info today. He's the expert, but uh, just how a lot of these the mental health programs that are given by all these various organizations, no matter where private or uh, uh, government organizations, they're not actually based, uh, evidence-based, and they're not necessarily actually doing the things they are selling you on. So I thought that was very interesting. So um, that might be something worth listening to and um, when we kind of get into it, because it's not to say that a lot of these programs are gimmicks uh, or you know, just trying to sell you something. They're just trying to make money, but it's like, what, you know, what's actually evidence-based and what's really going to work and how do we measure? Uh, that's a big thing too, that he's going to get into is like how, how we measure these things and whether they're helping people um, or maybe they're hurting people. You never know. It could be on the other side of things. So, um, but yeah, now so we're back with you in being in fire. And can you kind of talk about some of your experiences with, uh, being with the fire department and just what it's like day to day. Yeah, day to day. I'm downtown. I've been downtown for you know, over three years, so we're we're busy. And I mean, you've got Edmonton's a big big city. There's a lot of different places, so you've got you know the the way that a, a fire hall in the southwest operates is going to be much different than downtown. I think last year between our three trucks, we did like eleven thousand calls. Oh. So we're we're bumping. We're always moving. Um, like I said, we're in that downtown core, so uh, it, it's busy. But uh, I enjoy that. Uh, we're we're certainly right at the front of the uh, the the opioid issue uh, and the homeless issue. Uh, and then we've also got the fires that are constantly being started in mm-hmm. the uh, neighborhood around the stadium. So we're right in the mix of those two things that I think are pretty prevalent in the news. I think a lot of you know it's it's scary when you read you go to these fires. And you then read the story the next day and you, you see the interview with the person you saw that night, like their garage got lit on fire mm-hmm. and, and you, you know, you thankfully, unfortunately they lose their garage and they lose tons of their property, but maybe their house didn't burn and, and they're thankful for that. But then you read their comments in the news the next day and they're, they're scared to sleep because somebody's lighting these fires. Um, but it, it is nice to help people. Like I said, bad things are going to happen. I don't want them to happen. But when they do, I, I feel like I'm one of the people that can, can help out when we're there. So day to day, I mean, we, uh, you know, we still do the 
the trips to the grocery store. Uh, we're, we're lucky we get to eat well, but uh, when the when the tones go, you're expected to be be ready. Well, and we had a conversation before about uh, you said there's three types of trucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so how oh, does the schedule kind of work? Because you were talking about how you guys move between trucks and you're not always on the same one. Mm-hmm. So what is what? Uh, can you explain that for people? Yeah, yeah. With Station One, we have. You know, there's there's lots of different types of trucks, but the big ones that stand out is the, uh, you know, we've got the pumps, and they're the ones that have the hoses in the water. They're they go to everything. They're also the trucks that uh, get dispatched to medical aids for the most part. Uh, then at station one, we have a second pump. So you know, one day, those pumps take turn, take turns bearing the brunt of the calls. And then mixed in at station one, our third truck is a ladder, which is the, obviously the one with the big ladder on top. Mm-hmm. Uh, those trucks are. You know, they're more specialized for fire stuff, so they don't do a lot of medical aids. Like I mentioned last night, if you get flagged down, we do have the gear and the capability to help out with uh, with a medical call. So the uh, the pumps are very busy. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, we did, a, like I think it was 11,600 calls out of Station 1. The two pumps did 5,000 each. The latter did 1,600. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh. What, it, what it means is uh, your days are just a little bit quieter on the ladder. Lots of uh, walking around buildings looking for pulled fire alarms or why is water flowing? Lots of recon. How do uh, how do you switch between them? Is it a schedule? Yeah, it depends on qualifications. Obviously, if you can't drive the ladder, you don't drive the ladder. If you can't drive the pump, you don't drive the pump. So mm. it's basically, well, you know, at the end of the day, operational needs will dictate who sits where. But uh, for the most part, our, our, I have the officers in, in Edmonton Fire are amazing. Like the you know, and especially the the leadership that I've had at Station One from the time I've been well since I've been in the fire department has been excellent. They take care of us. You know, they make sure we get our time on that quieter truck because it's also exciting. Mm-hmm. You, I'll, I'll do medical aids all day, but I still enjoy going up in that bucket and, and helping put out fires. So um, maybe clear up a, a myth or whether it is a myth or not. But so is there still like running into fires? Does that still happen? If a building's on fire, are you actually going to like running into the building or what does fighting a fire entail? Jeez, yeah, this again too. This is going to be one of those ones. If any of the guys are listening, they're going to be like, "That's not true. That's not how it goes." I'll do my best, but uh, you know, for the most part, once there's fire, you want to put water on it. Mm. Uh, but eventually, you need to find it, and and you need to put it out. Now that depends on you know what the what type of structure, the the size, the materials, the age, the use that it's for will depend on on how that structure burns. Our job at we we need to do uh, some type of search of every building. Like I mean, unless it's completely unsustainable for anybody to be alive in there it's our responsibility to go and do a, a primary and a secondary search those are benchmarks at a fire uh, along with fire under control and fire out but uh you just need to do it properly i mean we're, we're trained to do that you make sure that there's water available uh, you do it smart but yeah you're responsible to go in there and make sure that there aren't people in there uh, but at the end of the day you need to put water on the fire as fast as possible as soon as the fire's out you can do put way more effort into looking for people yeah so if if you get to a house, say I guess a good example is a house because we have so many of these going up in flames lately. Um, you get to a house and it's on fire. Do like if somebody comes and says, "Oh, there's a person in there." Do you like physically go in, or are you expected to go in, or are you trying to? put the fire down to a certain extent and then you can go in? Like, how does that work? Yeah, both can happen at once. Like, sooner or later, you got to get in there. Like I said, unless it's completely unsustainable for life, we mm. we have to get in there. I mean, even in that circumstance, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find 
crews that wouldn't want to get in there as quick as possible. But yes, you're expected to go in. Yeah. But we have, again, we have excellent gear. We have the right trucks. We have, I think, relatively good training. I'm a big believer that we could train more. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we know what to do in that situation. And it depends where they are too. I mean, if you can throw a ladder up and help them out a window, uh, that's a very, very rare thing though. You know, pulling yeah. pulling people out of fires, they, like, that's a once in a lifetime call. Mm -hmm. You know, I have friends that have been on you know, 15, 16, 17 years. They've maybe pulled one person out of a fire. Now, cats and dogs, that's a whole nother story. We mm -hmm. pull a lot of cats and dogs out of fires and they are happy to see you when, when you run into them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I imagine with all the technology nowadays and you got smoke alarms in every single floor, if not multiple rooms on a floor and uh, there's so many ways out of the house. Like, yeah, the, the chances of you getting actually caught in a fire where with nowhere to go, uh, slim to none. Yeah, you've made a mistake if that happens. And, and I mean, well, I'm going to rephrase that. Something has gone wrong if that happens. You know, you might not have made a mistake. One of the biggest threats we have right now is with, you know, we, we have these derelict houses and these abandoned houses. And there's a program with the city to fortify them. And I, mm. I think that is the word that they use. So if you're driving around the stadium neighborhood and you see these abandoned homes with like white paint and heavy bolts securing the the doors and the windows, that has been you know fortified. Unfortunately, people can still find their way in there, start mm -hmm. fires, and we're responsible to go in there and get them. Now it's incredibly difficult to breach some of these homes that have been fortified, for lack of a better term. There's no like all the windows are bored. So all your egress is blocked. Yeah. So how do you safely go in there and do that? And that's one of the big questions we've had lately is, you know, do you, you can chainsaw all day through doors and windows, but it's a really bad idea to only have one way out. Yeah. Well, and can you tell me about some of the other things you guys do? Cause I, uh, you were mentioning the story just before we started here, how you guys were uh, spraying under the bridge and stuff oh, falling on you. And yeah, just yeah. some of the things you, people might not think you actually come across and it's like that actually happens. Yeah, well, it, yeah, some of the stuff that we come across is, is wild. And, you know, I mentioned we work in the, the downtown core and I have to mention that, you know, downtown core is absorbing what I consider they're an unfair amount of, of the city's issue with homelessness and opioid use. Like it is really centralized in that neighborhood. And you can look at the paper and watch the news all you want until you've come down there and actually seen what's happening you you know I, maybe you can grasp it maybe you can't but i, I mm -hmm. think it's important to understand what the downtown core is asking to is being asked to handle mm -hmm. so the story yeah that i was just mentioning is uh, we went to a, a fire under the bridge by the funicular where people had actually gotten up into the wooden slats of this bridge going over i think it's 98th Ave. i'm probably wrong but uh so there's a fire up there and the guys are spraying water and needles like start falling from between these slots and they're just landing on the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that's too bad that, uh, that these kind of things happen. Yeah. And you don't need to take one in the eye. No, nobody wants to. Yeah. We all kind of made that joke. Like, can you imagine if a needle just fell on you and stuck? Yeah. I mean, it probably wouldn't happen, but. Well, and uh, I know fire has the high angle rescue. Some of the other jobs you do. So you're high level bridge. You have some of the uh, water services i'll call it but like they go out on the the boats yep yeah, yeah um well the, the high angle guys are, are a specialty so those dudes have some extra training and uh you know they're based out of downtown so they're pretty close to that bridge we do they do go to the high level bridge a lot unfortunately 
the water responsibility kind of falls on anybody who's close to, you know, a static body of water or close to the river. Uh, Station one, we're close to the river. So we have what's called like a swift water capability. Mm. And, and we have the boats that we can go out there. Now, that being said, that river is intimidating. Like when there's lots of ice on there and things are really, really moving, that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen the embankments. They get really built up and it's yeah. huge chunks of ice. And uh, we had one one call where somebody had jumped from the high level and they, uh, this is the, in the middle of winter, they hit the ice. They hit it hard enough to crack it and they kind of sunk in, but it wasn't hard enough to break through. So we just see this uh, body laying out there. Uh, they ended up surviving, but uh, I remember my partner went to put his foot out like he was going to kind of test stepping out there like no way man no you just see all these jagged ice and um as you kind of throw some uh rocks and stuff see where there's like gaps you can see like it's just big piece of ice all jagged and crash together and there's a million holes everywhere you have no idea where you're going to step and fall in so definitely not worth it so we end up calling fire they bring the raft they go out there and, and retrieve the person so um yeah we obviously work in partnership for a million different calls. Mm-hmm. So um, one thing I want to ask uh, too, just because we'll be getting toward the end of the time here, but uh, if with all the new high rises going up and, you know, we've got the stand tech and that's what 60 or 80 floors or whatever it's supposed to be, how, uh, you know, the ladder truck only goes so high. So if there's ever a fire or you get some crazy event, like a 9-11 event, like what, what are procedures to actually deal with things on floor number 60? If there's a fire or, or structurally the, the building's coming down, like what the hell do you do to get up there? Oh, geez. I, I think that's one of those what if scenarios. I, I will say though, that the newer the building, the better the like mm-hmm. integral fire protection systems are. Yeah. Like one sprinkler is worth a lot of firefighters if it works properly. Oh really? Yeah. So the, a building like Stantec has an incredible fire protection system built into it. As so, I mean, we just supplement that system, and, and the city provided us with uh, trucks that have the capability to support that fire suppression system. I mean, they wouldn't have been able to build it if we didn't have those trucks. Mm-hmm. But as for, you know, if there's a fire on floor sixty, is you know, as long as the stairway is still clear and we have egress routes, uh, you know, that's manageable. As for like a, a catastrophic structural collapse i mean i i pray that 9 11 is a one-off and mm-hmm. and that can't happen again but i have no idea where you'd start with that i, I think you just do your best yeah you know, get people out as quickly as possible keep those stairways um clear of smoke and and go from there yeah the ladder truck doesn't uh you know, go as high as people might think well i just think about two when they had that it was a windstorm you had those windows window cleaners on the side mm-hmm. of the building and they were pretty high up and yeah you guys do some pretty interesting work yeah that was that was station one yeah trying to you know just rescue people from just the most random situations and you never know what's going to come every day is so different oh yeah and, and that's what i love about downtown we we do have a lot of the uh you know the, the same type of calls like i said lots of uh you know, opioid related um the, the the person down calls where we just go check on them see how they're doing uh, and then you know the the abandoned house structure fires or the, the abandoned house fires but every day is different and there's always something going on. And I mean, you know, when the Oilers are winning, it's fun downtown. When the festivals are on, it's fun downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's minus 40, it's not fun anywhere. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, when it's nice, it's nice downtown. 
Uh, one thing I do want to make sure you touch on was uh, some of the outside training and courses you do because you do some traveling for those. You're teaching the TCCC we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. to police and military still. I do. So can you just talk a bit about uh, uh, the teaching? Yeah, the you know I'm I'm getting to be older and uh, you know I've I've had the blessing to have lots of experience and lots of opportunities and and they're kind of unique, but uh, I always had a bit of a a knack for teaching like good basic medicine to both medical and non-medical providers. You know, I, I, I teach a lot of medicine at the fire department, which I'm glad to do with our, our advanced first aid course. And I mean, we're just advanced first aiders, but we can do a lot. If we, if we use our basic skills and, and tools properly, you can make a big difference for a patient. Uh, so I do that for police and, and the military. And, and a lot of that is, you know, non-medical people being given a secondary task or a secondary duty of medicine. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is, uh, you know, I, I teach lots of, uh, you know, the tactical police, every region's got their different names for them. But, uh, you know, I've done, uh, you know, both coasts and central Canada. And then I do the same for soldiers. I just got back from a trip uh, teaching TCCC to, to non-medical providers. And uh, yeah, I've just always had a way of, of showing them how to do really, really good medicine without making it too complicated. Cool. Uh, is there anything else you think we didn't cover that you want to make sure we kind of talk about or get to? No, I, uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate what you're doing here. And, uh, I hope it was a good conversation. I hope everybody makes it to this point in the podcast and hasn't turned it off 30 minutes ago. <laughs> you know what? I think a lot of people just put it on in the background. They just get sick of me first. So, <laughs> um, but no, I appreciate, uh, you coming out and we'll look to have, have you back on and talk about some of your other adventures that you go on and um, maybe we'll have to get out to the range because that's where we initially met was uh, you were out at the uh, Historical Arm Society at the range shooting one day and I showed up there and we just got to talking about some of the different firearms we have and some of the connections um, because you have family that are police and uh, yeah, we know some of the same people so it was pretty cool. Yeah, I do have a a, a lot of family members that are part of EPS and uh, you know I was always really proud of them my godfather uh, was uh, a police officer you know uncles cousins uh, yeah yeah grateful for what you guys do awesome well uh, I'll stop the recording here and then uh, we'll kind of chat offline but uh, yeah thanks again for coming you bet Nathan thank you